0: all right well good morning church good morning. Good morning. is anybody nervous <laughs> <laughs> it's just me right <laughs> oh, that's that's good that's good um so i was sick this week uh, malaria so i'm medicated right so if i say something that is incoherent you'll you'll know why <laughs> right? <laughs> so um i was asked to preach this morning uh for reasons only known to god into Pastor Sammy but as much as I feel inadequate and I do I'm inadequate and ill-suited I do count it a privilege to open up God's word and to share that with you this morning and so before we begin I would just ask us to pray together and ask God to help us this morning Heavenly Father this is the day that you have made and we will rejoice and be glad in it And so Father, I pray as we open up your word, that your Holy Spirit would be the teacher, that he would illuminate the scriptures, that he would conform our hearts and our minds into that of the image of Christ. So Father, I pray that you would do a good work in our hearts today, help us to respond in faith and obedience. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our God, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So the title of this morning's message is The Church at Antioch. And if I was a bit more creative, I would have come up with a better title. Uh, but this is as good as it gets. Um, but just by way of backdrop, I want to remind us where we find ourselves in the book of Acts. Because something extraordinary is going to happen in chapter 11, the one that we're going to be looking at. And so, if we look back at Acts 8-1, we see Jesus telling his early followers that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so, at this time, the church was centered and staying in Jerusalem, and it was growing, right? It was doing well. But God's vision was that the gospel would go to the nations. All to to the ends of the earth. And God has a way of getting us where he wants us to go, right? We know this to be true. And so in Acts 7, Stephen is martyred. And persecution breaks out amongst the church. And the followers of Jesus are first to scatter and to flee for their life. Except the apostles. That's an important footnote. And one of these individuals is a man named Philip. Philip. And Philip went to a place called Samaria. And in chapter 8, verse 5, it says that he proclaimed Christ. So we already see in chapter 8, the gospel is going to Samaria, uh, just as God intended. And in the same chapter, we learn of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. Right? Another Gentile. He's going, going to the nations. And then in chapter 10, we see the conversion of Cornelius. And so, the gospel is going. It is spreading to the Gentiles. So God's purpose in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is beginning to come to fruition, right? But interestingly, in these cases of the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius, these were guys seeking after Jews to share the gospel with them, right? But something interesting will happen in chapter 11, where we see Jewish people actually going and proclaiming the good news of Christ to Gentiles. And so this is a hinge point in the book of Acts. And so this morning, I want us to look at the church in Antioch, and specifically how it was formed, and the few characteristics that marked this church. So our outline this morning is verses uh, 9 through 21. Persecution and the spread of the gospel. Verses 22 through 26, investigation, encouragement, and discipleship. Verse 27 through 30, sending of relief. And then chapter 13, uh, 1 through 3, we see sending of missionaries. Okay? So, point number one, persecution and the spread of the gospel. So, verse 19, And so this commentary actually picks up in Acts 8, verse 1, right after Stephen is stoned in chapter 7. And it says, Acts 8, 1, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, right? So chapter 11 is picking up right where chapter 8 left off. We took a little hiatus to talk about the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius, but we're picking back up in chapter eight after the persecution of Stephen. In verse chapter four and chapter eight says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, right? So when persecution caused Christians to flee Jerusalem, well, they took the gospel with them, Right. And so, Luke picks up the story in chapter 11, verse 19, and says that the gospel went beyond Samaria to Phoenicia. And so, Phoenicia is, uh, is a coastal territory in modern-day Lebanon, and it is home to the cities of Tyre and Sidon. You might remember those. Remember Jesus talked about. And so, and then also, they went to Cyprus, where our dear brother has studied, right? And um, so that is all an island in the Mediterranean, and it went even further still to Antioch, even further north. It's pushing north, right? And so the, those who were persecuted, they saw this as a call to missions, right? They just proclaimed Christ wherever they went. And uh, so do, I don't want you to miss this. Satan's attempts to snuff out the gospel only served to spread the gospel. It's almost as if God has got this whole thing rigged, right? (laughs) So church, I want to remind you that God is sovereign over all things, right? Even persecution. He can use the evil and the wickedness of the murder of Christians to spread his gospel to people who have never heard it before. And we see this in the crucifixion of Christ. Wicked men crucified Christ, but it served to earn our salvation. Right? So, God can and is sovereign over suffering and persecution. And he chooses to use suffering and persecution to grow his church. And that's how, that's how God chooses to do it. And we'll see this throughout the pages of Scripture. So, initially, those who are scattered preach the word to no one except the Jews. Verse 19. Now perhaps they hadn't heard about what happened to the Ethiopian eunuch or Cornelius, or perhaps it's easier for us to share the gospel with those who are most culturally like us, right? But whatever the reason, they went about speaking the word to only the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Some of them. We don't even know their names, right? Their their names will not be lived on in Scripture. And it's too bad, so we can't immortalize them to where they live forever in the pages of Scripture. But these were ordinary disciples of Christ. Nothing special, nothing spectacular. And what did they do? It says that they preached the Lord Jesus to the Hellenists. Now, the Hellenists... It's just a word that means a Greek-speaking non-Jew, all right? Greek-speaking non-Jew, which is Gentiles, okay? So although these people who went about preaching the Lord Jesus, we don't know their names. They are nameless. They were not faithless, right? They were obedient to Christ's command to go through all the world and preach the gospel. And these, some of them, they went to a city called Antioch, right? So Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It came behind Rome and then Alexandria, and Alexandria was in North Africa. And historians say that this city of Antioch was home to some 500,000 people. That doesn't sound big today, right? But back in those days, that is a big city, very big city. And it was a hub for commerce and trade. It was a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-religious city. It was a tolerant city. All these different people from all these different nationalities and backgrounds are living in the same uh, city together. It's a melting pot. And so the city was also an immoral, corrupt, and vile city. In fact, a Roman satirist talks about how there's there's a river that goes from Antioch down to Rome, and it says the corruption flowed from Antioch and actually spoiled Rome. So this is, this is a wicked, evil, vile place. But yet, this place, Antioch, would become the launching pad for Christian missions to the Gentiles. The most unlikely of places, right? And so what did the, some of them do when they got to Antioch? It says that they preached the Lord Jesus. They heralded or proclaimed the gospel. They talked about his life, his death, his burial, and resurrection. And the fruit of that proclamation was, in verse 21, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. They were faithful to proclaim, and God added to their number. Now, these guys didn't go to seminary, right? They didn't go through any church planting training. They weren't involved in city to city Africa, no. (laughs) They simply went about and preached the Lord Jesus, ordinary disciples of Christ. And it says that a great number turned to the Lord. So we have to wonder, why did a great number turn to the Lord? Well, verse 21 answers that question. It says, because the hand of the Lord was with them, right? So let's have a good theology, okay? God is a spirit. He doesn't have a hand, right? (laughs) But the hand of the Lord is a picture. It's a picture of his presence and his power. And specifically, his saving power. And so only the hand of the Lord can bring about the fruit of the salvation. But it can bring about a whole lot of it, right? It says a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So I want us to consider just how many times the Lord is mentioned in this cluster of verses. Okay, so bear with me. So verse 20, it says that they were preaching the Lord. Verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And later in verse 21, it says that a great number who believed turned to the Lord. In verse 24, a great many people were added to the Lord. Verse 23, these new believers are encouraged to remain faithful to the Lord. So if you're tracking with me, let's put all of this together, okay? So the hand of the Lord worked through people of the preaching the Lord to turn people to the Lord so that they may be added to the Lord as a people faithful to the Lord. So in other words, salvation is from him and through him and to him, right? God is the one who caused the great number to believe, all right? And that is true of us. The only reason we have responded in faith is because God quickened our hearts to respond in faith, right? And so God is the one who receives the glory for our salvation. And he's the one in Antioch that caused a great many to turn to the Lord. But how, practically speaking, does the hand of the Lord actually add people to the Lord, right? This is on the human level, okay? Well, it happens when someone hears the good news of the gospel preached. Verse 20, right? They heard the good news of the gospel preached. And in verse 21, it says, They responded by turning and believing in the gospel. So true faith that receives the gift of salvation turns from sin in themselves and responds in faith to the gospel of Christ. And they return from sin in themselves to the Lord, to use the language of the text. So this text would urge us to do this today, right? May we join those in Antioch. If you've been coming to church and you think that through your church attendance or your giving or, or our prayers can earn the merit of God's salvation— It doesn't. It is only the gospel of Christ that can do that. And so the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is indeed the Lord. He's God's Son, and He came to live a perfect, sinless life. He was fully obedient to His Father and fulfilled the law and all of its its demands. And He died a sinner's death. He died on a cross in the place of sinners for their sins, and bore the wrath of God that was due for their sins. And so it's, it's called substitutionary atoning death, right? Substitute in your place for your sins and atone for. It appeased the wrath of God. So that anyone who turns from sin in themselves, trusting that and believing that they can earn God's favor through their good deeds, who turns from sin in themselves and turns to God in repentance of faith, will be reconciled to God forever, right? And you will receive the adoption of sons and then receive a heavenly inheritance and enjoy communion with Christ. So this is your greatest hope, both now in life and in death. And so I would plead with you, if you're not a follower of Christ, that you would turn from your sin in yourself and then you would laid hold of Christ and his righteous work on the cross in your place. So let's get back to the text. Luke doesn't want us to miss this. People didn't turn to the Lord because these some of them were something special or something extraordinary, but rather is because the hand of the Lord was with them and was accomplishing his purposes through them, right? Ordinary disciples of Christ. We don't even know their names. Yet Christ worked through them to accomplish his purposes. And so this is how the church um, in Antioch was birthed, right? This is how it was formed. These some of them went to Antioch, proclaimed the good news of Christ, Christ added to their number, and this is how it was born. And this is good news for us, right? Because we were Gentiles. We are benefactors of what happens in Antioch. And so we thank God for what he has done there. Um, in Antioch. And so, good so news of this reaches Jerusalem, right? They say news travels fast. But news to Jerusalem travels even faster. So point number 2, investigation, encouragement and discipleship. Verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called uh, Christians. Sorry. So the church in Jerusalem gets word that Gentiles are turning and believing in the Lord. And so they send Barnabas to go and investigate. They might have been curious, right, to hear a great many people turning to the Lord in this Gentile pagan city. And so what did they do? They sent Barnabas to go and investigate and to see what's going on. So why Barnabas? Well, he was like some of the evangelists, right? He was a Jew from Cyprus. So he was like those some of them who went. But more importantly, I think, is verse 24. It says that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith who else would you send in a crucial moment like this, right? Would you send the hot-tempered guy or the guy with a critical spirit or would you send someone like Barnabas, right? It says that he was a good man. Now nowhere else in the book of Acts is anyone referred to as a good man. So Barnabas was called this and he was a man of character, right? And the church of Jerusalem could see this. That's why they sent him. He was a man of moral and spiritual quality. He was mature, responsible, stable, loving, humble, and we know he was generous. If we looked back at Acts chapter 4, you remember he sold a field and gave the proceeds or the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles, so that the gospel would go forth, right? He's a generous man and he served and built up and he strengthened and encouraged. In fact, his nickname, Barnabas, it means son of encouragement, right? This is what he was called. So we call Kwame Chairman Junior, right? I think because he runs things. I'm not sure if that's why we call him that, but we call him Chairman Junior because he, that's it's just how, what he exemplifies, right? But Barnabas was an encourager. And they called him Barnabas because he was the son of encouragement. That's his nickname. And so this is just who he was, right? And oh, that we would have a church full of Barnabases, right? Or Barnaby? I'm not sure. And <laughs> hey, ladies, just so you don't feel left out, you can be a Barnabas too, okay? <laughs> All right, it says that, and why was he a good man? It says because he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Question for you, who or what comes to your mind when you think of someone full of the Holy Spirit and of faith? Think, is it the guy on TV that's wearing nice, nice clothes, that's drawing big crowds and collecting large offerings and doing miraculous healing services? Or is it someone like Barnabas, a stable man, a humble man, a generous man, someone who builds up in others, right? Who doesn't make things all about him, but actually wants to see flourishing in those who he's serving, right? This is not a self-serving man. This is a serving man. And that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, in him. And so, verse 23, it says, when Barnabas arrived in Antioch, he saw the grace of God and was glad. So how did he see the grace of God? Well, he saw conversions happening. That's true. That's for sure. But the gospel made such an impact in these people's lives that it actually transformed them. And he could see it. He could see it with his eyes. And it was God's grace made visible in those who turned from sinning themselves and placed their trust in Jesus. It is a change from the inside out. And so the, that Barnabas could even see this. And we see gospel transformation in others, don't we? We see someone who was once proud now become humble. We see someone who was all about serving themselves and now serving others. We see people who were once greedy, and now they're generous, right? We can see gospel transformation in the hearts of others. And Barnabas can see it, and we can see it too. And it must be too that these people bore the fruits of the Spirit, right? That of love, and of joy, and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things are made evident to those who have been transformed by the gospel. And how did Barnabas respond when he saw this? It says that he was glad, right? When he saw the grace of God, he responded by being glad. He was rejoicing. Now, I'm sure that these Gentile converts were not like those in Jerusalem. No. They probably and maybe wore shorts to church, right? They might have looked a little rasta. They might have had locks or might have been tatted up a little bit. And Barnabas didn't come to them and say, ah, you're okay, but the church in Jerusalem, that's where it's at. Now that's a real church. No, he didn't say that. Barnabas was glad and he rejoiced to see the grace of God at work wherever it took place and through whomever it took place. And so, what does Barnabas do after he gets to Antioch? Well, he used his gifts, right? He started to encourage them. In verse 23, it says, He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. This is the heart of his message. And in fact, The KJV actually has a good rendering of this this verse. It says, And he exhorted them all that with purpose of heart that they would cleave unto the Lord. So he was encouraging them, remain faithful, cleave to the Lord, cling to the Lord, walk with him. And because Barnabas knew what these new converts needed was to be reminded of this. They needed to be built up, to live out their new faith in Christ in the midst of a pagan land. Because he knew the hardships were coming for them. He knew persecution was coming. Mockery was coming. False teachings would come. But he's encouraging, don't take your eyes off of Christ cling to him. He's the one who will support and uphold you. And so Barnabas is just exercising his gifts by building them up and encouraging them. And in fact, God used Barnabas to add a great many people to the Lord through his encouragement. It says that a great many people were added to the Lord. But while ministry is going well for Barnabas, and he's mentoring, uh, ministering in Antioch. Things are going well. People are coming to faith. He notices something. He notices someone or something is missing, right? And so the type of character that Barnabas is, he removes himself and looks outside of himself, and he says, you know what these new believers need? They need more than just encouragement. They need that to be sure. But what they need is to be taught the rich, deep truths of Jesus and his gospel, right? And so Barnabas remembers Paul, right? At this time, Paul is off the pages, right? And some, some say it's about 10 years from the time that he fled Jerusalem and went to Tarsus, a 10-year gap. But Barnabas remembered Paul. And so in verses 25 through 26, it says that Barnabas goes to Tarsus, to look for Paul and brings him to Antioch, and they taught the church for a year. So Barnabas goes, leaves Antioch, says, What these people need to be taught, they need to be encouraged, but they also need to be taught, I'm gonna go look for Paul. Because I remember he's supposed to be a messenger to the Gentiles, and now we have a Gentile church. So I'm gonna call for him so that he can teach them the deep rich truths of Christ and his gospel. And this is remarkable, isn't it? Isn't it? Paul, who was once the chief persecutor of the church, is now God's chosen instrument to disciple and strengthen this church. Paul, God's chosen instrument to the Gentiles is now going. It's coming to fruition just as God said it would. And only God can orchestrate things like this, right? To take a persecutor of the church and turn him into a discipler of the church. And so verse 25, Luke gives us this historical footnote. It says, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the first place in history we know of followers of Christ being called Christians. These little Christ ones, these little Jesus people, right? Right? These little Christ, these ones that follow after him. And this is not what they called themselves. We like to refer to ourselves as Christians, right? This is not what they referred to themselves as. This is what they were referred to, right? This is what people called them. And in fact, it was probably a derogatory term, right? And this is just, uh, but this is what they're called. And it must be that they just went around talking about Christ all the time, right? It's like, these people talk about Jesus a lot. In fact, they're starting to look and act like him. And so they, they were dubbed the nickname Christian, which is what we we're called up until this day. And I pray that we would be known for nothing else, right? But for people who look like Christ and act like Christ, right? So point number three. Oh, what time are we supposed to finish? Is it 45? <laughs> Okay, (laughs) I'm at number three. We have four, so we'll keep going. All right, number three, sending of relief, verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea and they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul and so Luke makes a little transition and he's going to show us an evidence of the work of grace in this church in Antioch right it says that Agabus comes down from Jerusalem He prophesied that there would be a famine throughout all the world. Now, in Scripture, when we see throughout all the world, often it's referring to throughout the Roman world, right? And historians say that this actually did happen, and particularly in Judea. And so how does the church in Antioch respond to this? Well, they respond by sending relief or giving according to their ability to the brothers in Judea. Right, The gospel did something in the hearts of those in Antioch, and it made them generous people. People who are saved and transformed by the gospel are generous people, right? Because we understand the free grace that we were given, and it frees us up to then give to those who are in need, right? And this is a gospel, another evidence of gospel transformation in the hearts of both us here now, but also in those in Antioch. And this is what Barnabas is talking about. When he saw the grace of God, he could see it. These people were responding in faith and giving it to the brothers in Judea. Brothers, right? These are Gentile people sending relief to who? Jews. Do you know what the Jews referred to Gentiles as throughout Scripture? They were dogs, right? These two people did not like one another. But through the gospel and its reconciliation, it brought together two people who formerly did not like each other at all and made them one people. It made them family. It uses familial language. They sent it to the brothers in in, uh, Judea. And so the gospel is about reconciliation, right? It reconciles man to God through Christ, but it also reconciles man to man on a horizontal level. And this is the transformational work of the gospel in the hearts of believers. That we care and are generous and we give to those who are in need and we love the brothers and it unites two groups of people that formerly did not like one another. And so finally, the last point, number four, sending of missionaries Acts 13 verses 1 through 3 Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers Barnabas Simeon who was called Niger Lucius of Cyrene Manaen a lifelong friend of Herod the tetrarch and Saul And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting the Holy Spirit said Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now look who makes up this church in Antioch. It is a diverse group of people. We have Barnabas, who was a Jew, who was from Cyprus. We have Simeon, called Niger, or in Latin called the Black. So he was an African. We have Lucius of Cyrene, and this was in North Africa. We have Manaean, a friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And we have Saul of Tarsus, the former persecutor of the church. And this is a diverse church that the gospel has brought together. Remember, it's a gospel of reconciliation. God to man, but man to man. And this is who made up the church in Antioch diverse group of people. And it is an evidence and a small glimpse that God is reconciling a people from every people, tribe, tongue, and language unto himself. This is just a small taste, but from Acts chapter 11, it was going to burst across the pages of scripture from here on out. And so as they were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So as they were hungering for God and praying, the Holy Spirit spoke to them and he said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have for them. Now this is not a fleshly decision to send the greatest theologian perhaps ever and your greatest courager at the same time, right? That would be like the Holy Spirit says, send Pastor Sammy and Pastor Ami out on the same day and just go, right? (laughs) But how did this church respond? They submitted to the Spirit's leading, right? They knew that the gospel wasn't just about us here in Antioch, but rather the gospel is about those out there still who have yet to hear the good news of Christ. And so... Though this was not a fleshly decision, it was a spirit-informed decision. And so this church places their hands on them as kind of a sign of identifying with them, saying, We are partnering together. You are going, but we are going to support you through prayer and giving. And what did they do? They send ba- Paul, or no, I should say pa- Barnabas and Paul to the Gentiles, right? to be missionaries to the Gentiles. And this church would be used to take the Gospels to the ends of the earth. This Gentile church that God formed, who had redeemed, they're now partners in the Gospel together. And so in closing, I have just a few reflections based on this text, okay? I'll just read through them for the sake of time. I won't elaborate. All right, so number one, May we not relegate ministry solely to the pastors or staff, but view ourselves as ministers of the gospel wherever we find ourselves, whether that be at work or at school or in the markets or at the bus stop or in the barber shop. wherever you find yourselves. May we not relegate ministry solely to the few, but we meet. But may we view ourselves as all ministers of the gospel, just like these some of them, right? Number two, may we view suffering as God's ordained means for the accomplishment of the Great Commission. The gospel did not spread in spite of suffering, but it was actually specifically because of suffering. Right? Remember, God is sovereign over all things and even suffering, and he can use it, and he does use it for the spread of his gospel throughout the world. And church, I want to remind you that we follow a suffering Savior. We follow a Savior who suffered and died. But whereas Jesus suffered to accomplish salvation, we suffer to spread the message of salvation. Right? Right? And one day our suffering will end, but not yet. Right now we are in war times, not peacetime. Peacetime is coming, but right now it is wartime. And one day we will have our eternal rest when Christ returns and we are in the new heavens and the new earth. But until that day, may we give ourselves sacrifice for the spread of the gospel to those who have not heard it yet. Number three, May we give ourselves to the teaching and study of God's word. Verse 26, it says, For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. We don't become disciples by accident, right? These people were devoted to the teaching of God's word for a year. I don't know about you, but I don't hang around any place for a year unless I want to be there. Right? These people wanted to be there. They wanted to hear and be taught the Word of God. And so may we hunger for God's words and be conformed more into, more into the image of Christ by it, just as these people were. Number four, may we be a generous church that seeks to serve others, Verses 29 through 30. May we be a generous church that seeks to serve others. And I think we're doing well here, right? I'm encouraged when I look around and see how many of you are serving. When I see the after-school program to the children, so many people are involved serving the, the neighborhood kids. And when I see people serving in their missional families, someone is sick or someone needs food or whatever it is, serving, praying for one another, and it's encouragement. And we also see through the campus ministry, those who are coming out and going out and to serve students. So let's not give up. I just want to encourage you, keep going. This is a good endeavor that you're doing, so keep it up. And lastly, number five, may we be a people who love the glory of God and live to spread the gospel of God. May we be the people of God, love the glory of God, and live to spread the gospel of God. This is chapter 13, verses uh, two and three. So may we pray May we give and go to take the gospel to people who are either hostile to it or who haven't even heard it yet, right? So my prayer is that God would use our church, that he would use our church, and may we be prayers to this end. May we give generously to this end. And maybe my prayer is, that God would raise up some of us within this congregation and that we could lay our hands on them and identify with them and partner in the gospel and send them out to people who have yet to hear and be saved by the grace and mercy of God. And so may we, the people of God, be on the mission of God by the power of God for the glory of God. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word, and we pray that you would just conform our hearts into that of the image of Christ. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would quicken our wills and our desires to be obedient to what your word has to say. We cannot do this on our own. Father, I pray that we would be zealous in evangelism, that we would be disciples of you, but then in turn disciple others. I pray that we would just go about proclaiming uh, the gospel of Christ. I pray that we would be a generous people, that we would serve and give to those who are in need. And I pray, Father, that we would also be a sending church, that our church would be found faithful in, in sending of missionaries to the ends of the earth, and so that we could rejoice as we stand around the throne of God, as we see a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And know that we play just a small, small part in what you are doing. So I pray that you would use us to this end. And we thank you for all that you have done. We pray that you would use us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.